Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, February 28th. How concerned should we be about Chinese interference in our elections? And will we see a public inquiry into the Chinese government's attempts to interfere in Canada's democracy? We discuss the situation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. The UCP releases the latest provincial budget Tuesday afternoon. What can we expect and how will Albertans be impacted? We get insight from University of Calgary economist Trevor Toome. And finally, we discuss the important contributions Canada's black community has made to our country as we wrap up Black History Month with Robert Small, Order of Canada recipient and creator of the Legacy Poster. Calls for a public inquiry into Chinese election interference are growing. Joining us to talk about that and all the issues around attempts to interfere with Canada's democracy is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, hello. Thank you for joining us. Lots to talk about today. And in fact, let's start with the news that came down yesterday that all government-issued cell phones, Canadian government, federal-issued cell phones, will now have to delete TikTok from their phones because of concerns about Chinese spying. So what was the latest and and how is Ottawa reacting to the news? Well, basically, the rule is uh, for federal government employees that you're not allowed to download TikTok onto your phone anymore. They're saying that's because of security concerns. Um, and it, listening to some of the experts, they were saying it's, it's not necessarily that they can um, get into your phone and then into a government system, although I am no IT expert, so do not <laughs> take my word for that one. But there are things that can happen with apps, like turning on microphones to hear conversations um, and, and remotely accessing other things. So, so there's some security concerns there. And it's also, I think, about sending a message at a time when the relationship with China was becoming, or pardon me, is becoming uh, increasingly strained. So this doesn't apply to, you know, regular Canadians. You can still have TikTok in your phone if you want. But at this point, uh, the federal government is booting it off all federal government cell phones. If their employees want to keep it on their personal phone, they can, but they cannot have it on their work phone. Um, and then later in the evening, we heard that the Conservatives uh, were following suit in that and instructing their caucus to get it off their phones too and, and to get rid of their TikTok accounts, basically. But, you know, as far as you did underscore, uh, you know, uh, Mercedes, that government-issued phones, but their personal phones, they're allowed to have TikTok. Could this be a bone of contention as well? Because if people want to glean information from me, um, you know, besides having access to maybe some documents on my work phone, wouldn't the personal phone you know, have some information that they could glean? I mean, it depends what you've got on your personal phone. But as we said, like with the microphone or something, yeah, it's entirely possible. Most really sensitive federal government facilities require you to lock up your cell phone before you go in. Uh, they don't let you take it in. There's these little lock boxes with keys and you have to put your phone in it. Um, so if you go, for example, to the headquarters for the Canadian Special Operations Forces, uh, you can't take a cell phone and walk into that building at all. There's certainly a vulnerability potentially on the personal phone too in the sense of um, having access to, to conversations or something potentially. But it's a lot harder to tell somebody what they can or can't have on a personal device that the federal government doesn't own. Uh, so I suspect that might be a kettle of fish they did not want to try to, to get into um, compared to the government phone where they could say it's the government of Canada and we have every right to, to regulate what's on our property. Um, it probably gets a lot tougher if you start talking about somebody's personal device. Speaking of China, uh, this week on the West Block, you spoke with former CSIS director Dick Fadden. How concerned was or is Mr. Fadden about the potential for China to interfere in our democracy? And, and what do they believe has been happening in our past elections? 
Well, he didn't really get a lot into um, what CSIS believes has happened in any kind of detail. Um, and keep in mind, he left kind of around 2016. Uh, so a couple of years before we really start talking about the heavy duty interference attempts um, that we've been documenting at Global and the Globe and Mail has since 2019 and 2021 elections. But as a former national security advisor and CSIS director, he says, look, the threat is very real. Um, and to find out exactly what China was doing and, and what others knew about it and how it was being handled, he's saying that there is a need for a public inquiry, he believes, to kind of get to the bottom of this. Um, and yesterday, Mr. Trudeau was saying, well, look, we already have an inquiry, and it's a parliamentary one. Uh, it's not actually an inquiry, you know, it's, it's committee meetings. Um, and, and interesting to hear uh, Mr. Fab say, you know, committee meetings is sort of where this should happen in a parliamentary democracy. But the issue right now is that you have such a polarized parliament uh, and politicians can frankly, you know, be a little bit childish about stuff and, and highly partisan. How are you going to get to the bottom of this there? He does not believe that's the place. But he believes uh, a public inquiry is what's required, especially because you're talking about classified documents. Although I would point out there is finally, only in recent years, uh, a parliamentary committee with MPs that do have security clearances and who actually can look into this kind of stuff. Uh, but still lots of questions about how to sort of best examine this and get to the bottom of not just what are, you know, unprecedented and pretty incredible intelligence leaks from an intelligence establishment that, that clearly feels enough is, is not being done by the government. And as a result, you know, they've been turning to the media. It's interesting. I was listening on the way in this morning, Mercedes and uh, Shane Hewitt of uh, The Shift here on uh, the Chorus Radio Network, drew a great analogy, which was, you know, in the case of these MPs in question, still doing their job, still going to the office. Um, And one of the things that he was saying is if this was a corporation or or if this was, for example, even on a municipal level, a police force and and somebody, uh, there were questions surrounding their work, they would be off duty, perhaps with pay, but not in office at this point. And the fact that we have these MPs still going about their daily business during what we're seeing as somewhat of an investigation still, you know, in the office is is wrong and uh, shouldn't happen. Can we draw that parallel between the business world and, and politics? I don't think you can because the business world is private. Um, and politics is the will of the people and, and people who are elected. So who would be the person who has the power to make the decision that someone's no longer an MP and overturn the votes of the people? Um, at, at this point, I, you know, I, I take your point about sort of the, the power in caucus um, and concerns about that, but to be able to overturn an election result is a very big deal. And we don't even actually have a recall function in Canada. Um, and, and, and that's controversial over how well that works in other countries as well. So you get into some pretty serious questions about democracy when, you know, you are able to suspend somebody who people have elected because it would mean that that riding no longer has a voice in Parliament. Uh, and the people in that riding are not responsible for that. Now, there are other ways you could potentially deal with members of Parliament uh, who you're not happy with. For example, a leader can kick them out of caucus and say, you're going to sit as an independent until I figure this out. It was pretty clear yesterday that Mr. Trudeau was doubling down in support of, of Mr. Han Dong, who's the MP who we named um, and said that CSIS had made allegations that he was a winning affiliate in part of this Chinese election interference network. Uh, he was very clear, Mr. Trudeau, that he said not only did he stand by him, but he considered them to be lucky uh, to have Mr. Dong in their caucus uh, and, and sitting as an MP. So I don't think uh, he's sending signs that he's looking at, at putting Mr. Dong in a caucus for now. 
he would not answer questions, however, about whether or not CSIS had briefed the party about their concerns. So we still really don't have an answer from Mr. Trudeau about what he knows, about whether he's actually looking into this, uh, whether he's going to ask CSIS what, what allegations they've made. And he was quite categoric, too, in saying, we will not allow intelligence agencies to determine who can run an election. And that was a not-so-subtle shot at CSIS. Fascinating. Thank you always for updating us on all the things we need to know about Canadian politics, particularly. Have a great day, Mercedes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Interesting. Very yeah, interesting. I mean, here's, it's, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, an internal investigation, really, what it gets down to when you're talking about Parliament, we need that, you know, uh, inquiry. We need a, a inquiry separate and we need to find out. And yes, I understand what Mercedes is saying, but at the same time, in, in other parts of, of, of business, in other parts in our nation, if, if there's some sort of an investigation or questions, people are temporarily removed. I'm not saying lose your job, but you may, this is the bigger picture that Mercedes mentioned. We don't have a recall in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can you, does he, does, is it in Trudeau's best interest to have him sit as an independent? No, it's not. It's certainly when it's a team member. I, it's such a weird thing. To it, it is. You'd, you'd think we need a little bit of a revamping, wouldn't you? Perhaps. Maybe, maybe so. Alberta's UCP government will table the latest provincial budget this afternoon. And joining us to help set the stage and preview today's budget, we're joined by Trevor Toome, professor in the Department of Economics and Research Fellow at the U of C School of Public Policy. Good morning to you, Trevor. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here and uh, super timely. We know the surplus is going to be close to $30 billion in and about $30 billion. What are you expecting to hear today from the government in terms of spending? What do you expect them to, to, to focus on? Well, I think, as you noted, about $30 billion there in resource revenue is looking like it is still in the cards for the current fiscal year. But we shouldn't expect that to continue for the next year. The surplus is almost surely going to shrink, maybe around 3 or $4 billion for the current year. And that's really because oil prices have fallen considerably from their highs last summer. But I still think the province will present a very strong financial picture, and that's, uh, I guess, convenient for the government going into an election in a few months time. Trevor, when you say resource revenue, can you kind of explain that where the money actually comes from? Sure. So we, we, like any other government, collect a lot of revenue from income taxes on individuals and corporations. But unlike other provinces, we receive royalties that are charged on producers of oil and gas. And that goes up when oil prices and gas prices are high and down when those prices fall. And it looks like for the 2022 fiscal year, we're going to be uh, bringing in about 20 $8 billion in those charges. And most of that comes from royalties paid by large oil sands producers. Uh, for the coming year, maybe we should be expecting something closer to somewhere between 15 to 20 billion. And that'll be a number to watch this afternoon. All right. Let's say you're in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Be better in the driver's seat than Sue or myself. Uh, <laughs> how would this money best be used? And, uh, used? and, and can we anticipate, do you think, so-called Danny dollars, kind of like Ralph Bucks. Well, I I think we have seen several announcements from the government already. So I I think it won't be too much of a surprise when the budget comes out that a lot of this additional revenue 
is being spent on particular projects. Now, it's not surprising. This is our first pre-election budget in eight years. And so there's going to be a couple uh, election goodies in there for many individuals, targeted competitive ridings in particular. But most of the money that's coming in is really being used to uh, lower the amount of debt that the province was previously anticipated to bring in. So we were expecting to borrow significantly for the current fiscal year, but with all this additional resource revenue, we no longer need to do that. Uh, now, And then some of the excess windfall that's coming in, some of it's going to be saved in the Heritage Fund, some of it's going to have some debt repayment this year, and some of it will go to increase spending. So that split between those buckets will be uh, something I'll look for uh, this afternoon, but it, it, most of the revenue uh, is being used to, I guess, improve the financial position of the government. Yeah, so, I mean, as you say, an election is around the corner, so we know what to anticipate. Will much be put away for savings, or do you think it'll really be a spend fest as the government tries to appease everyone heading towards the election? I, I think we'll see a little bit of everything, a little bit of increased saving, a little bit of debt repayment, a little bit of spending. They they do have somewhere between three and a half to four billion dollars available for them to decide how to allocate that. I, I, I suspect we'll see something around one to two billion in debt repayment, one to two billion in saving, and roughly that amount also in uh, additional spending initiatives. So probably not exactly, but I think roughly uh, it'll be a one third one-third, one-third split between those three categories. And then it'll be up to voters to evaluate whether or not they think that was a prudent choice. Well, let's let's break this down, the timing, because as we were, we talked with, the, you know, Shay Gannam, his show is just after 9 o'clock. We spoke with him about this coming up, his thoughts. Uh, and uh, with 90 days, we come to the conclusion, we're like within 90 days of the election. If this was not the case, what changes and what differences would we see in a budget? Well, I think an, an election being so close would naturally lead any party to have a, a shorter term orientation to its fiscal policy choices. So if this were a budget released maybe in the beginning of someone's mandate, I think we would we would see a a longer term perspective, maybe some more difficult choices, such as saving more and making up for that uh, elsewhere, either with more spending restraint or potentially new taxes. Uh, but there is an exception to that. We should remember in 2015, the last time we had a pre-election budget from Premier Jim Prentice, that was a budget facing you know, very difficult economic circumstances, dropping oil prices, dropping revenues. And it was a budget that featured spending restraint and new taxes and tax increases in that budget. And so that was something that uh, I guess is very different than today, but we might be surprised what is in there. I kind of hope for a longer term vision around where we're going to go with our resource revenues. Are we going to finally start to talk about saving more? Uh, of those dollars, but I sort of suspect that the election makes that difficult. No doubt. Thank you so much for your perspective. Appreciate it. We'll uh, we'll be watching this afternoon. Thank you so much, Trevor. My pleasure. You take care. Thanks, you too. Trevor Toome, Professor, Department of Economics, Research Fellow, School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And just a heads up, QR Calgary will have extensive coverage when the budget is tabled this afternoon at 3.15. We are capping off Black History Month with a discussion around black resistance with our friend Robert Small, Order of Canada recipient, artist, and creator of the Legacy Poster. Welcome back, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sue. How are you doing? Excellent. Great to be back. 
Thank you so much for taking some time this morning. We had the pleasure of speaking with you last year during Black History Month as well. But for those of us with maybe short memories, remind us, tell us about your background and the legacy poster. Yeah, well, for the last 29 years, I've been creating a, a poster that celebrates the achievements of African Canadians. I'm selling it across uh, the country. I, uh, two years ago, I received the Order of Canada for it, for my dedication towards that craft and using my art as a vehicle for it to educate Canadians across society. And uh, the legacy continues because I'm still doing it to this very day. Love it. No one would have told me that when I was 25, but hey, what can you do? <laughs> uh, Robert, this year, one of the things that you're focusing on is black resistance and perhaps resilience as well. But how has the black community been able to be resilient in the face of oppression, discrimination, prejudice that just seems to continue? Yeah, you know, I think the constant pattern has been with respect to the existence of racism and oppression in general throughout history. And it takes different turns given the circumstances under which we're in. You know, the, the advancement of technology, then you have, to, you have to be working with the technological gap in between the black, uh, the black community and other communities. So, that's, so, the, so the income difference only magnifies given the advance of technology. Or when the pandemic hit, you know, a lot of blacks were front were frontline workers and stuff like that. So it impacts them directly due to the fact that they cannot get more positions in higher higher up in their in their field, right? So I think it's really just being re- resilient, depending on the circumstances that we're in, just trying to push forward. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Robert, uh, you know, we look at Black History Month. We look at the calendar. It's confined to twenty eight days. Well. Some years up to 29 in the month of February. Uh, but how do we extend that? How, how do we uh, take a look at, you know, black history 365 days a year and incorporate a little bit into our 365 and not just one month? Well, yeah. Well, the, well once again, when we think about when people say, say resistance, uh, people often think about picking up, a, a, you know, an object and fighting people. But resistance can be in the mind, too. Like I had to jokingly tell a black pastor that said, oh, it's too bad that you can't come in on March 2nd because Black History Month is finishing on March, February 28th. I, go, I had to tell him, I go, who told you that <laughs> you can't invite me on March 2nd? Don't talk right? about it other than February. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, who told you that I'm going to say the exact same thing on 28th that I'm going to say on the 2nd, right? You know, so he just he just laughed. He said, well, that's true, right? And so I constantly, throughout the 29 years I've been doing this, I find that there's the constraints of the mind that really keep uh, keep us from celebrating Black History Month throughout the whole year. And I, I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect someone from uh, South Asia or the Jewish to be celebrating Black History Month in October. In October, but it's definitely something that myself, as African Canadian, that I should do because it's empowering, right? Absolutely. And Robert, you know, you're a student of history. That's kind of what, you know, the the legacy poster is really all about. So tell us the importance of, you know, the black community in the fabric of Canadian society then and now. What sort of stands out to you and and what you're doing with the uh, the legacy poster itself? Well, the the thing that stands out for me and keeps me going, keeps me doing this, is I, I, I keep in contact with people. I come into contact with people all the time that might have been four or five years old and then now they're 20 or 25 and they tell me that they've seen my they've seen the poster throughout their whole life right like different variations of it they might see one that's 10 years old then flash forward 15 years later they see another one right they might see it 
in Toronto, and then they would go to Vancouver and see it again, right? So knowing that I'm having that type of effect, that it's something that's been permeating Canadian society uh, for so long and will remain long after that I'm passed away, like I feel like I'm doing my part through my posters and through my art, as well as like knowing that that generational wise there'll be portions of my family that would be that would be compelled to do something with my art or even do something for the black community just because their great great grandfather was Robert Small right so that really spurred me on thanks so much for your time and your insight Robert we appreciate it yeah thank you thank you thank you for having me again as Robert Small, Order of Canada recipient, artist, and creators, uh, creator of the Legacy Poster. More online at thelegacyposter.com.